This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 42, April 14, 1983. Before we go ahead, let me just comment on the fact that April 14 is the day on which, in 1865, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. That tragic fact while cutting short the life of Abraham Lincoln ensured greatness for him because a martyred president became immediately the focal point of a great deal of adulation. As a result, while Lincoln was a likable man, a very honest assessment would have to say he was not a great president. Lincoln did a great deal of damage to the Constitution as a president. And the consequences of that administration are still with us. One can say, as a matter of fact, that the Lincoln administration destroyed the work of Andrew Jackson. It gave to this country a monetary instability which culminated in the Federal Reserve Act and our present monetary crisis. As a result, before our present economic crisis is over and the destruction of the paper dollar is completed, we're going to understand a great deal more of what went wrong in 1860. Let me add that one of the great instruments of that evil was Chase, who was responsible for some very deadly monetary policies. Today we are going to deal largely with an entirely different subject. During the month of March, for 24 or 25 days, Howard Amundsen and Mark Rushdoony were abroad. Most of their time they spent, in fact, almost all their time in Bangladesh and India. Howard Amundsen is out of town at present, but Mark Rushdoony is here with us, and we're going to discuss the subject of India and Bangladesh, primarily Bangladesh. The purpose of their trip was to examine a situation that is developed in Bangladesh among the Christians. We will try to avoid the use of names, that is, of native believers, for the very simple reason that it is dangerous to use their names. The purpose of this trip was to ascertain what is happening to the Christian community in Bangladesh. It is suffering under the present regime. Now, before we get into that, <laughs> there were some problems with regard to the travel arrangements which are revealing as to what socialism is able to do. Did you have trouble getting your flights once you hit India and Bangladesh, Mark? Yes, well, I learned one thing, that the only thing worse than American bureaucracy is third world bureaucracy. It's, it's the same bureaucracy, only without the computers. So <laughs> it's far worse. Travel internationally always has to be confirmed 72 hours in advance. In India and Bangladesh, however, you have to confirm your flights and other travel arrangements 72 hours in advance. So communications are so poor, and with the lack of proper telephones and computers, uh, you cannot communicate easily from one city to the next. So what we found was that even though we had all our flights reserved from Los Angeles weeks and weeks in advance, you had to be in a city and confirm your reservations three days before you left. So if you planned uh, 
to arrive in a city, for instance, a problem we found in Bangladesh and India, was that we would arrive in a city and by the time we had arrived in a city, they had given our seats to someone else. But you couldn't confirm your reservations until you had reached that city. So ideally, you would want to spend at least three days in each city. So as soon as you got to that city, you could confirm your reservations. So for instance, when we got to Dhaka, we wanted to take a flight out of Dhaka to Chittagong, which is within Bangladesh. But they'd already given our seats to someone else. We had tickets, but tickets are meaningless unless you are in the city you intend to depart from. So without computers and without proper telephone accommodations, you're largely left at the mercy of third world bureaucracy. Now what happened when you went to the airport? Would the airport ticket taker make any changes in your tickets? Oh no. For instance, in Dhaka, the airport which is on the outside, outskirts of town, which is incidentally built by the United Nations. There's, there's a lot of Western capital visible in Bangladesh due to, I think, uh, Western guilt complex. Uh, but they would tell you to change your ticket, you had to go back into Dhaka, which could be easily a 30-minute ride. No changes in tickets could be made at the airport themselves. You had to find a ticket agent in Dhaka proper. So we went back and forth between the airport and Dhaka several times and it was only with the help of, in one case, uh, hotel personnel who were used to dealing with such problems that we were able to get uh, flights. Uh, to give you an idea what that means, it could be comparable to this. If you're in a hotel in uh, Washington, D.C., and you go out to Dulles to catch a plane, if there are any changes to be made in your flight, you have to go back from Dulles to the ticket office in Washington, D.C. It's a good uh, system to keep you in the hotels. How about the toll roads? I was amused by your account of that. Well, of course, in India, the economic policy is to employ the most amount of people doing meaningless or menial tasks at subsistence wages. They have no concept of efficiency. So to provide as full employment as possible, uh, in this one bridge we had to cross near Bombay, we were taking a taxi because we couldn't get a flight. <laughs> uh, when we arrived at a bridge, you paid your toll and they gave you a ticket which means they had to pay somebody to print these tickets. And then you drove about 50 or 75 yards, and you had to stop, and a man took your ticket. <laughs> so they employed about three times as many people to do what one person could efficiently do. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that, by the way, is an example of the influence of Mahatma Gandhi, which is still surviving in India and Bangladesh. And obviously, England and the United States would like to see more of that here because we've certainly glorified Gandhi and his economic insanities. Now, uh, let's get on with the matter of um, the persecution of Christians. Who are these Christians in Bangladesh? Well, Bangladesh is officially a Muslim country. The uh, majority of the natives of Bangladesh are Bengalis. Bengali is, perhaps you could call it a sub-race in the Bangladesh-India area. For instance, in Calcutta, the people who are in the Calcutta-India er area are also Bengalis. There are a number of sub-races in that part of the world which are collectively are known as Indians. Now, the Bengalis control Bangladesh. There are some tribes in the hills and various other areas which are not really related closely to the Bengali people. We talked with a member of uh, one of these tribes. This tribal is from an area which collectively is known as the Chittagong Hills area, and there are about 
ten tribes which are known as the Chittagong Hill tribes. And as opposed to the Bengalis, the individual we met looked rather Vietnamese. Quite a, an astonishing difference. Uh, it's something you don't really realize until you get there and you travel into different parts of India is the difference, the racial differences amongst the peoples in that part of the world. Now, the three of these ten tribes, and the tribes collectively comprise about 600,000 individuals, three of the ten tribes are virtually 100% Christian, and some of the others. And the Christian church, interestingly enough, goes back to the early parts of the last century. A you know, British missionary first came to that area in 1918, and British missionaries followed, about four or five followed him. But since that time, the church there has been conducted and led by native pastors. Was it 1819 or 1918? 1819. 1819, very yes. good. Most of the tri tribals in these Chittagong Hill tracts are animists, a few are Buddhists, and a few... Hindus. Under, they've had problems of recent years, which to explain I have to go back to the British area. The British regime gave the Chittagong Hill tribes virtual autonomy in this area. They divided the Chittagong Hills tribes into three general districts, and one of the tribals in each of the three districts was able to hold court, in fact they called them kings, to virtually govern this area independently. In fact, it was a virtual reservation system. Non-tribals, that is Bengalis, and could not even enter this area except for specific purposes, and they could not permanently reside there under any circumstances. So the tribals have a, a long history of controlling this land, and the church there amongst these three tribals has begun to expand in recent years. However, when this area was turned over, became part of Pakistan, these this Chittagong Hills manuals, as they were called, this was the guarantee of the British government. These Chittagong Hill manuals was most were mostly honored by the Pakistanis. However, they began to allow incursions, and it w turned out to be the Bengalis versus the tribals. And the Bengalis, as one Bengali told me, by hook or by crook began entering these lands and began legally or illegally cheating the tribals out of their lands. And one of the first major problems these tribals had was when in the building of a large dam there, the Kaptai Dam Project. And during the building of the Kaptai Dam, a lot of these tribals were forced off their lands. Many of them had to flee to other areas entirely, including as far as, far as uh, India and Burma. And unfortunately, many of these tribals were scattered. In addition, uh, a great many, no one knows how many, perhaps as many as a thousand tribals were captured, and their throats were slashed as something of a black blood sacrifice. Uh, in the building of this dam. And interestingly enough, U.S. funds went to the building of the Kaptai Dam. So we uh, actually financed the human sacrifice of a thousand people. At least a thousand. He said, this tribal leader I talked to said they have no way of knowing how many, but I asked him if it was tens or dozens or, or hundreds, and he said, certainly over a thousand. Mm -hmm. Now, when Bangladesh became independent about 10 or 12 years ago, 
the Bangladeshi government would not honor these Chittagong Hill track manuals. They said that Bengalis could move anywhere freely. And interestingly enough, for a time, the Bangladesh government referred to their people as Bengalis. Mm-hmm. Though not all the people were Bengalis. A lot of the tribals who applied for school teaching jobs and other such jobs were turned down if they put their race as uh, their tribe. They had to put it as Bengali, and some of them refused to say they were Bengalis when they weren't. And it was only much later that the Bangladesh government finally even agreed to let these people call themselves Bangladeshis and refer to their national identity. But immediately after the formation of the Bangladesh government, many of these tribals tried to form a resistance movement, a peaceable resistance movement, to persuade the government to honor the Chittagong Hills Tracts Manuals. But their policy was obvious from the beginning, because as soon as they reneged on the the traditional uh, policy incorporated in Chittagong Hill Tracts Manuals, they began resettling Bengalis in the tribal areas. So it's been a policy of the government for a long time to let Bengalis move into these tribal lands and to take lands from these tribals uh, and give them to Bengalis. In fact, of late, about half of the tribal lands, which we're talking now about... uh, 375,000 acres is the total area we're talking about of all the tribal lands originally. About half of this 375,000, 375, uh, excuse me, about half of the 375,000 acres has now been completely taken away from the tribals and put into what's called government forest reserves. And much of this is farmland and hunting lands that have now taken away from the tribal. So they've immediately lost at least half their lands. Well, some of the tribals, mostly a viciously non-Christian tribal group, began fighting. And there's some guerrilla activity broke out. Two years ago, the government moved in with the army and told many of these tribals that they would have to move on to grouping centers, basically concentration camps, and that these tribals would have to move to an army camp. About 1,200 families now are living in these army grouping centers without sufficient means to provide for food and clothing and medical care. They have to have written permission to leave the army camps. The market is 18 miles away. The, their farms are as much as 10 or 12 miles away, which means their crops are often stolen at night. They have to hire someone to carry their crops from the fields to the markets, and sometimes as much as two-thirds of their crop disappear between the fields and the market. So they're having a very difficult time and due to this government action for the first time they are facing actual starvation and it was interesting that the tribal leader who spoke to me said that of his tribe not one died in the Bangladesh war which is considering the severity of that war that was an amazing statistic but of his Christian tribe, not one individual died in that war, even though many of them served. And now this is their more serious crisis, and it caused not by the war, but by the government policy of forcing them off of their farmlands. So they're facing a very trying situation there, and they are trying to get some type of help. And I thought it was very interesting when he was asking for in large part, was AIDS so that the church could provide tools and machinery so that they could diversify their means of income and so that the individuals could therefore tithe back to the church to help 
support some of the other tribals. And I thought it was interesting that these Christians had, were tithers. Uh, what was your general impression of the faith of these Chittagong tribes? Well, there was a translation problem, so I, I wondered about this. I only, unfortunately, due to the transportation problem, we only got to meet the one individual. We meant to fly from Dhaka uh, to another city in Bangladesh in order to meet with about 27 of them came to meet us. And they had traveled over 40 miles on foot and by boat. And we're talking very primitive boats that looked like something out of a, a previous century. And then they had a four-hour bus ride to get to the meeting point. But due to these uh, bureaucratic complications, we were not able to meet these 27 tribal leaders. But one was able to get down to meet us in Dhaka. And I wondered about this. I wondered about what kind of Christianity they had been exposed to. But due to the translation problem, uh, I wasn't sure how I would ask him so that questions so that he would be able to really communicate this with me. But toward, at the end of our meeting, we prayed, and it was when he prayed that I, I could see his faith come through crystal clear, because when he prayed, you could see that he knew the power of God in his life. And here was this man who was whose land was occupied by the army. He was, in effect, in a concentration camp. And when he prayed, he said that he said that God controls all things. We know that all things are in His hands, and that nothing happens, but that He controls it. And I wish I could remember uh, his prayer verbatim, because it was a very moving prayer, and it showed that he truly knew the power of God in his life. He was praying in English. Yes, he prayed in English. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was extremely moved by his prayer, and I could see that the, the Christianity he knew was a very practical and very real Christianity. It wasn't a pietistic or a phony Christianity. He w it was obvious that, that the trials he knew, he was... He was understanding in terms of his faith, and he was understanding them in terms of the sovereignty of God and God's providential hand, and uh, never a word of complaint mm -hmm. from him. What is the uh, background of the mission there? Was it uh, the Church of England or some other groups from England that I don't know. It was a British mission. It, he said it was... Um, the North East India General Mission, and that would oh. have been a British yes. mission. Um, as to the specifics of uh, that mission, I don't know. Mm. But as I said, that began in 1918, and there were four or five missionaries sent by them. So for 1819. Some, excuse me, 1819. So for some time now, the church has been... Uh, Independent. It's no longer a missionary church. Mm -hmm. It is a native church. What about uh, missions generally in Bangladesh and India, the ones that are still being continued by Westerners? Well, <clears throat> in Bangladesh, missionary activity is very difficult because the government is officially Islamic and they do not like Christianity. All church activity, all mission activity and related agencies are regulated by the government. Their budgets must be approved by government authority, which it's a, it's a military mm -hmm. government, so it, we're talking military authorities when I refer mm -hmm. to the government. Everything must be approved by them. All books have to be opened to them. So that in one case, 
one of our group had purchased his ticket quite recently, and so he was actually able to get to the 27 tribal leaders. But we had purchased our ticket so far in advance that they wouldn't honor it. He wanted to give them some money to cover their travel expenses to that city because they had gone to extreme difficulty and uh, hardship getting that far. And he wanted to convert some American traveler's checks into Bangladesh money or taka. And the local mission there wouldn't do it because they had to keep a record of everything and questions would be asked. And to get the government um, investigating you is a dangerous thing. The local missions there cannot help these tribals. Uh, Would they shut them down or close the missions if they did? They might very possibly because this situation is not really what the government would call humanitarian effort. They would be interfering with the military operation in the Chittagong Hills. And so the military government would not look favorably upon any help to the Chittagong Hills tribes. So any help that goes to them, they were very adamant, and we heard this from a number of different individuals not associated with the Chittagong Hill tribes, that help would have to be indirect and it would have to be on the sly. And they actually suggested having someone go there as a tourist, convert their traveler's checks into taka, and hand it to someone to be hand-carried to these tribals. Because any group, only certain groups are even allowed to get money from out of the country. And then they're closely regulated. And so the, it's, a, it's a difficult time they have, especially in Bangladesh. In India, it's an officially secular country, and they don't have as great a problem. In other words, we cannot depend on, in fact, we can depend on the missions in Bangladesh to say nothing about the Chittagong Hill Tribes. That's right. They're, they're afraid of uh, jeopardizing their ministry if they buck the government. Mm -hmm. So the church there is is, to a large extent, under the control of the government. Let me just interject something. This was the whole point of the trip, to find out what was happening, because the outside world is not told and cannot be told by any of the existing missions. Let me add this, too. This is not an unusual story. What we forget is that whatever the ills of colonialism... The colonial powers did a great deal to protect the minority groups in various countries in Africa and Asia. With the end of colonialism, we have seen the persecution and the massacre of minority groups within various countries in Asia and in Africa. Much of this has gone unreported and the world knows nothing about it. It's precisely because these hill tribes had such fine Christian leadership and character that it was felt necessary to go find out what was happening and to tell the story. This is why we're having uh, Mark give you this report and he is also going to write it up for either the Chalcedon Report or a subsequent issue of the Journal of Christian Reconstruction because we want this to get out. We want it to be heard. This is not an unusual story. It's a commonplace one. And we are involved in it in that our federal government is loaning money to peoples who are persecuting Christianity, and indulging in human sacrifice. Excuse the interruption, Mark, but I did want to get that in. One thing I would add, I mentioned that the U.S. government gave money to this Kaptai Dam project, which involved the persecution and even the execution of many tribals. In addition, one of 
the, the members of our group that went, met up with a man he had previously meet, met who was involved in U.S. aid to Bangladesh. And he discussed the problem of the Chittagong Hill tribes to this U.S. aid officer. And the U.S. aid officer was not aware of these grouping centers and the fact that they were persecuting the tribals. In fact, the one of the fish ponds at the grouping center was built, was dug and financed by U.S. aid. And he said that he was here. He was involved in this giving this aid, and he said he was not aware of the circumstances about it and the fact that the government was actually helping to finance in part the construction of one of these grouping centers. And he told the member of our group, says, I wonder how, why we weren't aware of this. And he said, oh, I know. The Bangladesh officer in charge is a Bengali. Mm -hmm. A lot of the times, and this was a criticism uh, that's pretty common in that part of the world, our government gives money to these third world countries and they don't really know what it's being used for. And that's a, a fairly common complaint, even amongst third world countries, that we're uh, so concerned, I think, about being considered imperialists that we don't even bother finding out what our money is being used for. Yes. There's probably not a single member of Congress that uh, knows that uh, we finance the human sacrifice of over a thousand hill people in Bangladesh. And I don't think they would be disturbed if they found out. Well, you also saw something of missions in India and in Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that the missionaries were of a high caliber or that they were influenced by liberation theology? One individual that's involved with a couple of international uh, organizations, one of international Christian uh, evangelical uh, relief organization, the other an association of evangelicals, I found that he was very much influenced and very much favorable to liberation theology. Uh, and it was, I have to tell this story because we got a real kick out of it. Uh, when it, he, this individual took us to the airport and Howard gave him a book for his kindness. He had taken us out to lunch and had a, shown us some of the, his agency's relief work and some of it which was doing some obvious good. But Howard gave him David Chilton's book. <laughs> and if you've seen the cover of David Chilton's book, which is a, a biblical response to Ron Sider, it's Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators. On that book, Underneath the title, in large letters, it's a biblical response to the teachings of Ronald Sider. And David Chilton's name as the author is not very conspicuous on the cover. So this, this individual looked at this book, and he said, Ah, oh, Ronald Sider, one of my favorite authors. And so Howard and I, with that, Howard and I turned and walked into the airport, <laughs> try, try to keep our chuckles to ourselves till we were out of sight. Let me say, liberation theology is a sentimentalized version of Marxism which is very influential in church circles. It controls Catholic and Protestant missionary activity the world over. It is common to modernists and to fundamentalists, to Calvinists and Arminians, it is present in virtually every seminary in the United States. Now, I'm going to write something about the world missions of the Christian church in our day, 
before too many months are passed. I've already got some material collected for it. But I'll say this in advance. A point I'm going to make in that is that the two greatest exporters of Marxism in the world today are the Soviet Union and the Christian Church, the Christian missionary activity. And of the two, the Christian Church is the more successful exporter. So we have a tremendous evil out there. And a lot of these people claim to believe the Bible from cover to cover and are simple minded idiots who take this liberation theology and promulgate it with enthusiasm, Catholics and Protestants alike. We are exporting Marxism all over the world in the name of Christ. Something I saw the real need for in India and Bangladesh was works directed toward these tribals to try and explode some of the myths on which their economies are based, the Gandhi uh, myths of thinking small. Mm -hmm. Something you can <laughs> um, certainly tell when you think small you never get very big and that's ingrained into them to think small. And it's, it's unfortunate that this man is a hero and you mentioned Abraham Lincoln. I, I mm -hmm. thought of the similarities between Abraham Lincoln and his death making him a martyr mm -hmm. and distorting the true historical Lincoln and I think Gandhi's death did the same thing. That Gandhi's death made him a martyr and the historical Gandhi has been lost in the, in the martyr, the myth yes. of the martyr Gandhi. And he has done, India remember is 700 million people. He has done more harm peaceably than any man I can think of. Mm -hmm. You can think of Stalin's and uh, Mao Zedong's that did great things uh, militarily to harm people. But Gandhi was certainly a peace lover, but peaceably he has done more harm to the lives of 700 million people past and present in India than, in, than anyone I can think of. Yes, and the pacifist Gandhi did not feel there was anything wrong with them massacre of about six million Muslims when independence arrived. One of the great promoters of the Gandhi economics is uh, Schumacher's book, Small is Beautiful. And that book is in use in uh, Christian colleges all over the country. Very popular. If the book is not in use, the ideas now have been absorbed and are in use. I know that once in a while to present an alternative viewpoint, I would be invited to one of the more prominent uh, evangelical colleges in the country to speak. The last time I was invited, I spoke on the fallacies of Schumacher's book, Small is Beautiful, and they have never since invited me back, even as an alternate speaker, uh, to give the alternative perspective. Now, uh, you were roped in <laughs> to one missionary uh, project, Mark, which was an illustration of this small is beautiful thing, and in a minute I'm going to have you tell us about it. But let me say this about Gandhi's philosophy. He was hostile to all technology, totally hostile. And for Gandhi, technology involved anything above the primitive level. In fact, for Gandhi, uh, a wheelbarrow uh, to haul cement from place to place would be modern technology. It would be too advanced, uh, let alone uh, a jackhammer or a truck or anything like that. I, I think India is compromising with the Gandhi premises to have any automobiles or trains there. But this primitivism is so deeply embedded
in the Gandhi outlook, and it is behind the environmentalist, small is beautiful, no economic growth, no population growth mentality that is prevalent all around us today. It is a part of the anti-nuclear power movement. You encounter it every time you turn around. Now, the Thomas Nelson Company, or else Dodd-Mead, one or the other, will have a book by Grenier very soon as an answer to the Gandhi film, because the Gandhi film is fiction from start to finish. And the purpose of this uh, book by Grenier will be to counteract it. Before I talk about the hatred of technology in India, which I have a, I saw firsthand, I want to say something about the liberation theology. When you're over there, you can see very clearly how easy it is to preach liberation theology. When you see the poverty and the wealth and the nonchalance with which these live side by side, you can see how easy it is for them to preach. Let me give you an example. When we were in Bangladesh, we stayed at a Japanese hotel. As compared to American hotels, it, it's, it was rather reasonable. But the elegance, it was a Japanese-built hotel, and they do things right. And this was something which would have fit in very well in Beverly Hills or Century City, among the finest uh, hotels in this country. And to look at something like that amongst the poverty of Dhaka, Bangladesh. You can imagine how easy it would be for a missionary to point at that. And instead of trying to gain repentance and faith, to appeal to the sin nature of man, to appeal to their envious nature, and to point to that and to see that is what is wrong. Not your heart, but this is what is wrong. This, this wealth. See, So, liberation theology is all of Marxism. It appeals to man's envious nature. And in a poor culture in which they can see wealth, it would be very easy to preach that. And perhaps one advantage, you might say, of the caste system is that perhaps liberation theology hasn't caught on as much as it might in a Western country because the people are accustomed mm -hmm. to living poorly in the presence of wealth. So that's perhaps one uh, thing in which the caste system has, to a certain degree, retarded the influence of liberation theology, though it is gaining influence. Mm -hmm. You and some others were roped in as guests of a mission into <laughs> a Gandhi-style project. Tell us about it. Well, it didn't start out that way, but I, I guess that's really what it turned out. We, uh, The leader of our group wanted us to do something symbolic for the Union Biblical Seminary campus there. It's the largest... Uh, it's a mainline evangelical seminary campus in India. It's the largest one in that part of the world, certainly between Africa and perhaps Singapore. He wanted us to do something at this construction site of the new campus that, uh, so we could say we really helped. Well, the original idea was to plant a tree. And if I'm going to do something symbolic, I think planting a tree is just up my line. That's, that, that's my idea of nice symbolism. However, it was the wrong time of the year to plant trees. It was the hot season, wasn't it? Yes, it was just <laughs> begun the dry season. They didn't want to have to pay someone to water them during the dry season. Oh, then we were going to do painting. Well, I can do painting as well as any native. But the carpenter had 
had ruined the wood doors and cabinets somehow, and so they wouldn't accept the paint, and they had a problem with that. So the third option was digging a ditch for a water line. So we spent three and a half days digging a ditch, Gandhi style. Now they don't have a uh, tool like we do even. Their tool is basically a pick and a large hoe, with a, a large bladed hoe with a short handle. They don't have, even they don't use wheelbarrows. If they want to move dirt any distance, they, they scrape it into little pans and put the pans on their heads and <laughs> carry it in pans. How about shovels? Uh, no round-headed shovels, for instance, for digging dirt out of a ditch. You do it with a hoe, and as you kind of lift dirt on the hoe, and then you kind of lift up this short-handled hoe up above the ditch and drop it out. Short-handled hoe? Short-handled. That would be people, hard on your back yes, with your were height. Yes, two and a half, at the most, three feet in length. And you <laughs> see people walking down the street, bent over at literally a 90-degree angle, because they've spent much of their life hunched over like this, working with these short-handed tools. And I asked one Indian why they did that. And he wasn't sure, but he speculated that due to their economic policy ideas to employ the most amount of people inefficiently, that they have to work close together. So a long-handled tool, he thought, might get in the way. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> so they all hunch over so they don't bump tool handles into someone. But we actually saw firsthand, because this was a construction site, and so for three and a half days we were on a construction site, and we saw the Gandhi philosophy in action. And you have to see this to believe. Now this is a city of almost two million people. And to dig huge water lines, trenches for huge water lines, these trenches would be about three feet across and up to six to eight feet deep. Much of it through rock and no backhoe. They don't want backhoes because one backhoe operator would put dozens and dozens of people with picks and hoes out of work. So they, their idea is to employ a large number of people for a long time. How much? A dollar twenty a day the men got, the women got the equivalent of sixty or seventy cents a day. No wheelbarrows, if the women have to move concrete, and this is several stories some of these buildings were, and to move concrete up to these buildings, or bricks, the women would l put them on top of their head. And so uh, they would How would they move the concrete on their heads? In, in little pans. Dish pans. Li like a little dish pan, yes. yes. And they would uh, they'd mix it up down on the ground, they'd put it into the pan, and the women would carry it up, hand it to a man on scaffold, and he, he would drop it in. Hmm. Time after time after time. Same thing with the bricks. A woman could carry 12 bricks on a board on her head. No wheelbarrows. I saw a few wheelbarrows, but they were for the few Westerners that were there. And they weren't being used by the natives. And I, I asked one of the natives there who spoke very fluent English, isn't there a backhoe in this a city this size? And they said, oh, we don't want backhoes because that would put so many people out of work. India has tremendous resource, and their tremendous resource is cheap labor. But the way to take advantage of this cheap labor would be in, to encourage Western capital to come in and build factories and such to take advantage of it. But they won't have anything to do with Western capital. Now, you mentioned that they do have uh, trucks and cars. Their, their exception to this no-technology thing is if India can produce the technology, uh, they're in favor of it. Mm -hmm. So you see they do produce steel, and they do all the cars are made in India, and the trucks likewise. But if they can't produce it, they don't want Western capital in there. Coca-Cola, for instance, left because India wanted such a huge cut uh, of their profits, the Coca-Cola just said, forget it, and Coca-Cola walked out of India. But they want nothing which is not, doesn't come from inside of 
India. They're very suspicious of any Western capital. So their greatest resource, their cheap labor, cannot be taken advantage of. Now, in this work, uh, the idea was to show, of course, the natives that you Westerners were one with them. What was the reaction of the natives? <laughs> uh, a little, I think, puzzlement. A, uh, one native asked us, we didn't stop one day quite at uh, quitting time, and he asked us when we were quitting. And one of the fellows told him what time we were quitting. And he was puzzled, and he, the native picked up why he was puzzled, because everybody works the same hours. Mm -hmm. So why would we be working a little longer mm -hmm. for the same pay? And so he, he volunteered the information. We're not getting paid for this. And he got a very puzzled look. Why would we be doing this and not get paid for it? But um, They thought I, you were crazy, in yeah. other words. <laughs> I thought I thought we were crazy too. I, uh, here we were doing work. We were spending money to stay in this area, and we were doing work that we could pay a laborer a dollar twenty a day, and they could probably do more work than we could, being used to it. Um, that's not my idea. I, I like I say, symbolic tree planting. I I can see, but. Symbolic dick, ditch digging at the equivalent of a dollar twenty a day. I can't see. I'd have much rather <laughs> pitched in five dollars than let a, a coolie, which incidentally is what they call their native workers. I thought for a couple of days, you know, that was a derogatory term because we, if we would call someone a coolie, it would be derogatory. But that is what they they call their common laborers, is coolies. And uh, we were doing the work of coolies. That's no wonder you were disgusted with the whole thing, and it's a wonder that you were able to stand straight. Mark, let me say, is 6'2", and to work with uh, a very short-handled hoe, digging a deep trench like that, <laughs> was back-breaking work. Well, I didn't exert myself uh, <laughs> too greatly. I... Uh, <laughs> I tried to th I tried to uh, rationalize that there was some sense to it, but very quickly I decided there wasn't any sense to it, so I wasn't going to kill myself. Good. You showed some common sense. The missionary who thought that idea up, that project up, was the idiot. And the natives, in being puzzled, were showing some common sense. Natives would have been happy if You'd given the work to them and paid for it. Certainly, certainly they could have used it. There, by the way, for, for sixty or seventy cents for a woman, or a dollar twenty a day for a man, they are glad to get it because many of them are still unemployed. Mm -hmm. So they are glad to get the work, uh, even at those low wages. You know, you mentioned the uh, beauty of the hotels. And certainly the pictures you brought home and sent home indicate that. It's an interesting fact that you have to go to Asia to see the extremes of wealth and poverty. I saw a list the other day of the most luxurious hotels in the world. Uh, and on the list of the ten most luxurious, there was not one American hotel named. Mm -hmm. And a number of them were in the Far East. That's interesting. So uh, we have a much more even balance here between top and bottom than Asia does, mm -hmm. or Africa for that matter. Some of the, the extremes in India are, are no longer because the government has taken over many things, but when you walk down a street, particularly in the old parts of town, you look at some of these buildings and you can see these old stone or brick buildings that obviously date back to the British era, and you can see what, that at one time, it was a very nice area. At one time, if they're, it's a very filthy country, of course, but if it wasn't as filthy, and they controlled the cattle a little bit more so they wouldn't be uh, destroying uh, so much of the vegetation. 
if the sanitation was a little bit better, there was, there's a real charm to much of it. And there's a, there's a real natural beauty there. And uh, you can appreciate the difficulty the, the British had trying to bring some order to a place like that. And some of the early missionaries that went to India, they had to plan it. They brought their families and they planned on staying for life. And it would have been a very difficult. You, you, you really have an admiration for some of the missionaries who went to these places two and three hundred years ago and never planned on seeing Western civilization again. Let me add, by the way, that uh, before Howard and Mark went to Bangladesh and India, they were in Japan for a couple of days, and then uh, on their return were in Switzerland for two or three days and had an opportunity there to have dinner with uh, the Francis Schaeffers. And by the way, Mark, I was with Frankie Schaefer last Saturday in Washington, D.C. And also to spend some time with one of our Chalcedon associates in Lausanne, Switzerland, Jean-Marc Bertou. Uh, is there anything you want to add about uh, Jean-Marc or about Bangladesh? Well, Jean-Marc is doing an important work there on a, uh, what can only be described as a shoestring budget. Much of it he has to finance himself. He has a tent-making uh, profession with the post office, and he's been translating a great many things. He does his own research, and... Uh, he puts a lot of uh, information in the hands of local officials. Local government is still more alive in Switzerland due to the history of the, the localized canton. They didn't have a, they didn't have a, Switzerland did not have a federal government until about the time of the American Civil War. So they still have more of a history of local control. And what he has done is he's tried to put information into the hands of local officials on the Christian perspective on a great many uh, important issues, impertinent issues to them. And some of them have not responded, some of them have been very appreciative. Mm -hmm. But he's done an important work and he's had a, a great influence there on a shoestring budget. Yes. Jean-Marc Bertou uh, has a brother who is a prominent professor and theologian in France. Jean-Marc, whose field is philosophy, felt that he wanted to have a Chalcedon-type ministry there, so he got a desk job with the post office to provide him with bread and butter. And he has been lecturing at universities throughout Western Europe uh, and has become an expert in the areas of modern Catholic and Protestant philosophies of religion. He's doing a remarkable work. He's also organized the parents in Switzerland, Catholic and Protestant, and has uh, done important work in the field of education with them. Because of that, the uh, opposition has taken reprisals. They've not been able to fire him from his job but they've been able to cut down on his hours and therefore his income. And since the beginning of this year, whenever we have anything left over in a, a month, we try to send it to Jean-Marc to help him with his ministry there because whether it's in uh, France, Spain, the Netherlands, or Germany, Jean-Marc is exercising a very important influence in Europe. Well, our time is just about over. It's been good to be with you again. And Mark will have an account of this in writing for you to read, either in a Chalcedon report in the near future or in the Journal of Christian Reconstruction. We're not sure yet which it will be in, but uh, it will depend on the length of the article, where we shall place it. It might even be in the Chalcedon News. At any rate, this uh, trip was paid for 
to Bangladesh by the Fieldstead Institute, and it was an opportunity for us to get information otherwise unavailable to pass on to you. We hope you will share it with others. We hope we can start a backfire so that Congress will take a closer look at where their money is going. Hopefully one of these days this country will again be interested in a responsible kind of attitude towards its investments the world over. Well, until our next time together, thank you for listening, and God be with you.